the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as uh, as we head into our first hour this Wednesday, June seventh, twenty twenty three. I see that uh, two people threw their hat in the ring today for presidency. Uh, Mike Pence. Many of us thought that already happened Monday. He was just filing papers, and uh, today he uh, actually uh, did the announcement, and we can talk about that. And then, of course, the North Dakota Governor Burgum, I guess. The funniest thing I saw written about uh, the North Dakota governor's uh, announcement for the presidency was, are we all just going to take his word that he is the governor of North Dakota? (laughs) Because who the heck had ever heard of this guy before? Um, Burgum, B-U-R-G-U-M. And we'll talk, of course, uh, to David, who had some thoughts on the Mike Pence candidacy as well in a little bit. People are up in arms over the PGA merger with LIV and Saudi Arabia's win here, taking over professional golf. The Wall Street Journal editorializes, quote, is Saudi Arabia's crown prince Mohammed bin Salman trolling President Biden? Over the weekend, Riyadh cut its oil production to lift prices. On Tuesday, the Saudi-backed LIV Golf announced a merger with the PGA Tour and Europe's DP World Tour. Call it the revenge of the pariah, to borrow Mr. Biden's epithet for Mohammed bin Salman. Close quote. Crown Prince Salman, you will recall, he is who then presidential candidate Joe Biden called a pariah in 2019 and said he would help in his words, quote, make Saudi Arabia the pariah that they are, close quote. Then Joe Biden became president and then he traveled to Saudi Arabia and famously fist bumped. Mohammed bin Salman, just before groveling before him to produce more oil and lower the prices, after, of course, making it more difficult to produce more oil here in America and raising the prices already. This master of foreign policy, Joe Biden, he hasn't achieved an accomplishment yet, not with Saudi Arabia, not with China, not in the Middle East, not really anywhere. In fact, he's made things worse, especially with Saudi Arabia, given his passion to appease Iran, pushing Saudi Arabia closer to China and farther away from the United States. Please don't get me wrong on this. I carry no brief or truck with or for Saudi Arabia. It is a disaster of a country that nobody would care about if their chief export were, say, artichokes. But it was our ally, and some of us still think alliances matter. They energized us, and they militarily trained with us. They don't have a government that, say, shouts death to America by routine, and they don't publicly support or privately support burning the American flag, unlike the country of equally bad human rights that Joe Biden has continued to appease. You know that country, the one that famously held rounds of American hostages and supports the A-team of terrorism in the Middle East, Hezbollah, and has directed the killing of thousands of Americans throughout the world, especially in Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, and Iraq. 
But in the end, Saudi Arabia is not that much of a threat to us, or wasn't, or our allies, and its Islamist ideology, while once combinatory influence operationally here, has been reduced under Mohammed bin Salman, as have some human rights abuses, some. There is, however, a country that is a major threat to us and our allies, and whose ideology is being exported here or welcomed as a desirous import. And that's China. And it seems to me the continued appeasement of that country, whether they are sending surveillance materiel over our sovereign airspace or pushing us around to the United Nations or cutting off U.S. destroyers in international waters or using their fighter jets to cut off our surveillance aircraft in international airspace. The continued appeasement of that country is, shall we call it, a new form of sinological Stockholm syndrome. I can coin a phrase. Now, if you want to blame Saudi Arabia for its record on women's rights, I'm right there with you and have been doing it for a long time. But also then, please, too, be prepared to speak to China's and Iran's. Women and women's rights matter regardless of the country, after all, don't they? It's about the women, not the country. Here's what the nonpartisan Human and Political Rights Foundation Freedom House said about women's rights in China in their 2022 report. Quote, societal groups such as women, ethnic and religious minorities, and LGBT people have no opportunity to gain meaningful political representation and, as with the rest of the population, are barred from advancing their interests outside the structures controlled by the communist Chinese, by the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP. More, quote, Muslim women in Xinjiang, particularly those with two or more children, are subject to a program of forced sterilization. Women's rights activists and individuals involved in the Me Too movement against sexual harassment and assault have themselves faced harassment, detention, and in some cases, criminal prosecution. After tennis star Peng Shuai accused former PSC member Zhang Gaoli of sexual assault on social media in November 2021, she disappeared from public view, close quote. They're good at that in China, disappearing people. Most communist countries are. And let us make no mistake about what China is. They tell us right up there in their constitution's preamble, quote, the success of China's socialist cause have been achieved by the Chinese people of all nationalities under the leadership of the Communist Party of China and the guidance of Marxism-Leninism and Mao Zedong thought, close quote. Please note the relationship to socialism and Marxist-Leninism as even the Chinese constitution has it. You get socialism by adhering to Marxism-Leninism. Just so the point, by the way, from China does not get forgotten, again, in the Constitution of China's preamble, we get another sentence testifying to this, broadcasting this, promoting this, quote, under the leadership of the Communist Party of China and the guidance of Marxism, Leninism, and Mao Zedong thought, the Chinese people of all nationalities will continue to adhere to the people's democratic dictatorship and follow the socialist road. Okay, close quote. Okay. You're beginning to understand that the division between socialism and communism is less and less distant. In fact, in China, or at least according to 
Chinese Mao Zedong's interpretation of Marxism-Leninism, they are two sides of the same coin. So why do I say I worry about them exporting their ideology here, or rather our eager importation of it here? Well, just look at the Cultural Revolution in China under Mao and what is taking place in America. As Dr. Forrest Marion wrote last week, quote, in recent years, indoctrination and anti-American propaganda has spread from numerous universities to public schools in America. The indoctrination of children under critical race theory's influence in the last several years reminded Xi Van Fleet, a survivor of the Cultural Revolution, quote, of what she witnessed growing up in Mao's China. She said the communist regime used the same critical theory to divide people. The only difference is that they used class instead of race. This is indeed the American version of the Chinese Cultural Revolution, close quote. In a 1973 article in Asian Survey, an academic journal published by the University of California, Berkeley, not exactly a conservative publication, the author described Chinese corrective labor camps' methods of inmates' thought reform. Quote, repeated minor problems can lead to cadre warnings and to a demand that the inmate in question write a self-examination essay known as Xin Tao Chu, confessing his failings. Close quote. Who will deny that American universities and other institutions now practice this concept in the form of so-called white privilege and other exercises? In another, <clears throat> excuse me, in another Asian survey piece, Juliana Pennington Hazlett wrote, quote, bands of these young bands of these young rebels roved Chinese cities, destroying ancient relics, accosting citizens wearing Western or bourgeois clothing and renamed buildings and streets with the phrase, the East is red, Tung Fang Hung, close quote. Note, although rebels against civilization, they were doing the bidding of the constituted authorities. Who will disagree that countless American city, city, citizens, cities, universities, and other institutions, including reviled defunded police departments whose officers risk their lives daily attempting to maintain law and order have experienced similar treatment at the hands of naming and renaming commissions and Black Lives Matter and Antifa or other poisonous entities. In the Cultural Revolution, Mao Zedong attempted to rid China of what were called the four olds, old ideas, old culture, old customs, and old habits. For a recent New York Times book review, under Xi Jinping, China's top leader, efforts to suppress this history have intensified with troubling implications for the political health of the country at a time when it looms larger than ever on the world stage. Pamela Paul, the reviewer, writes, quote, high school textbooks in China now reduce the cultural revolution to just a few short paragraphs. And the country, as a result, is, quote, ethically hollow with a numb passivity, an absence of conscience, a sickness of the soul. She writes that the moral decline in China is more of a severe problem than even poverty or crime. By the way, one of the olds that Mao Zedong tried to get rid of was femininity and the effort to erase it, as Professor K. Ann Johnson put it. 
Think of those old Mao uniforms as but one of many symbols and efforts. What Mao wanted was the adoption of what was called, quote, universal masculinity, close quote. Now think about the transgender movement here. All of this comes to us as important for two even more important reasons. One, it is a whitewashing of the toxicity of the Mao Marxism that is receiving increased countenance and celebration here in America, especially among our youth and promulgated in the media aimed at our youth. Two, it is or should be instructive to us as to what happens to a country that propagandizes its own history. In short, it is the two fires that lead us to the place we are in now. Right here, ethically hollow, with a numb passivity and an absence of conscience that is, in fact, worse than poverty and crime. Because, among other things, those are the very gasolines that lead to such social problems as poverty and crime. Now, the interesting thing about our education wars here, our textbook wars here, as is the case of the textbook propagandizing in China, is that they both come from the same direction, opposition to capitalism, animated by neo-Marxism, and iconoclastic of our old ideas and culture, like freedom, equality, and American or Western Greatness. Think about replacing 1619 for 1776. Think about how our awful American history scores are. Think about the aggressive antagonism toward rooting out critical race theory in our history books or in our elementary and high schools. Surprise, surprise that all such fuels and animations lead to the apathy I've been lamenting here, or as Pamela Paul put it, the ethical hollowness with a numb passivity, an absence of conscience, a sickness of the soul impregnating so much of our society. China is indeed a major military and economic threat we need to fight, but it is also an ideological one, and that threat needs to be fought just as hard, not imported and adopted. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Am I getting you to like 80s music a little bit more, David Dahl? I've always liked 80s music, but more specifically New Wave. Uh, yeah, less specifically here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get the feeling. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, you were telling me um, there are these protests um, obviously going on in Atlanta over the development of a police training facility. It's been dubbed Cop City. You'll remember there were riots over it. Uh, and a lot of violence about it and a lot of attacks on police over it uh, a few months back, I think maybe in January, end of January, if, if memory serves. And uh, the city council of Atlanta has uh, finally voted to approve the going ahead and building and development of this uh, police training facility. It's been met with thousands of protests, uh, people against the militarization of the police. I... I Look, we can either have police that have the power to do something uh, to put down crime and stop violence, or you can have social workers try and negotiate the end of it. Um, those are those are your choices, and and we've seen what happens when you try the latter. But you said, David, uh, that this is also uh, th- this protest about Atlanta. People are thinking, I suppose, nationally and acting locally, huh? That even at ASU, students are protesting this development in Atlanta. Yes, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. this is a hot-button issue amongst yeah. young people, young liberals, at yeah. least, yes. Yeah, evidently. I wouldn't call them liberals. I'd call them 
leftists. Uh, for, you know, I was making the point earlier, just even based on the easy, easy to understand Chinese constitution that says the road to socialism is Marxist-Leninism. And uh, with the teachings of Mao Zedong, of course, they put that in their preamble twice, just so you wouldn't miss it the first time. If you go to the uh, Twitter feed for a uh, Twitter page for students for socialism at ASU, uh, something I'm guessing most of you have not done, it's quite instructive. You know, um, when you have a Twitter page, and David, I hope you soon will have one, but when you have a Twitter page, you get to put a little bio, a biography under under it. You get to say who you are. Uh, and they tell us who they are. I just hope people aren't missing this. Students for Socialism ASU, S-F-S-A-S-U. I will read you verbatim what their self-description uh, dis- is. Quote, Students for Socialism at Arizona State University is a socialist, revolutionary, Marxist club. Our mission is to end capitalism and fight for socialism. They're telling you who they are, folks. They're telling you who they are. By the way, they link to a, a larger national organization, Party for Socialism and Liberation, PSL, uh, whose motto is for the planet to live, capitalism must end. Um, boy, I, I, you know, I, I don't mean to, I don't mean to, to over, overstate this, but you just never saw anything like this 20 years ago or before. You just never did. And the fact that it has become so commonplace, so ho-hum, I imagine people in earshot even thinking, so what? Leaps and get off it. Um, well, okay, I, 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 I won't spend all my time on it or even the, the rest of the show on it, really, unless you want to talk about it yourselves and call in on it. But just, you know, when you see increasing socialism coming from our students— and increasing antagonism to capitalism coming from our students. And when you see increasing numbers of self-declared socialists in our Congress and Senate, and when you see increased socialist legislation coming from it, um, don't say that you didn't see it coming. You can act ho-hum. You can think it's not that important. It's just, you know— the way the Democratic Party has become, well, it is what the Democratic has, Democratic Party has become. They have nurtured and coddled it, and it's um, it's unfortunate that we aren't governed by party here. In that sense, you know, the Democratic Party in power doesn't just govern Democrats; they govern all of us if they're in power, and they're in a lot of power. They have a lot of power right now. So, you know, just because it's a part of a party or a big part or even the dominant part of a party, don't think it doesn't affect you. As I often like to say, you may not be interested in political philosophy, but believe you me, it's interested in you. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. John Dombrowski is the founder and president of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. Great website, easy place to reach out to him if you'd like, grandcanyonplanning.com, and the host of his own radio show right here every Saturday morning at 7 a.m., The Word on Wealth. How are you today, sir? Fantastic, Seth. Thank you. Um, There's an interesting story kind of at CNBC. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, people have a lot of questions because, you know, we often talk and 
you you know and and the audience is often often talking about you know concerns about recession obviously inflation certain volatilities in different markets the bank issues is it uh is it a good time now is it too late is it too soon to start investing and where right and cnbc kind of did a an interesting little three three part uh tip sheet on it and i was wondering you're you're the king of this huh? if you might walk us through it it's interesting. I'm looking at this. It talks about you know uh, where to begin, as you yep. said, and, and setting up a plan for your finances and so forth. And and this, when I saw this, Seth, it was so funny. It brought me back. I know we have just a short period of time, but I got to tell this story. Yeah. It's so so funny. Sure. Uh, I was called by one of the local television stations to do a, a spot on one of the morning TV shows here. Uh-huh. And uh, when I got there, you know, we we sit down. I'm sitting down with the host of the show. And uh, they go live, and they start throwing the questions at me. And he says, now, so what is this about um, when you uh, plan for a cruise? How do you go about, you know, and he starts throwing questions at me about a vacation and how to plan for a vacation. Oh, gosh. And I, of course, said, well, gee, I don't know. I said, I'm a financial professional here. I don't book cruises, uh, you know, but I kind of went with it. And, and I'm thinking to myself, I guess more most people, they spend more time planning their vacation yeah, that's the takeaway, than yeah. they do planning uh, for their financial. Unless you were wearing a Hawaiian shirt. Matters. You're right. No, I wasn't. <laughs> I've seen you in them. <laughs> but it was so funny. Uh, and we had a big laugh about it afterwards. But, uh, you know, I went with it along with the, you know. No, it's as, a good point, as though. We were you, doing t- live. you drew the right point. I think. So here yeah. we are yeah. uh, in a situation where, uh, what do you do? How do you get started when it comes to planning for your financial future? And I, I go through this with clients, you know. As people call us from listening to us on the show here or my radio show, whatever it might be. And first thing we have to do is understand what your goals are. We have to create, you know, uh, uh, where, where do we want to get to? So then we can back into this and ultimately create a plan for someone. So but, you need to know the end point. The goal yeah, is the we, first part. Yeah, we want to okay. set the goal. What right. is it that you need? You know, what are your income needs? Uh, not only today, but what are your income needs you know, that you believe their income needs will be when you retire, yeah. right? And then so we can now work towards that goal. And then, too, we want to understand what our current income is and our expenses, our budget, right? And oftentimes people, when I ask that question, they look at me and they with a blank stare because we really don't know what our budget is yeah. a lot of times. We just yeah. spend money and we go about our life and uh, things come up and it's sometimes it's difficult to save. Sometimes, you know, we have extra money. But we don't really understand it, and how do we, you know, budget for this? Uh, how much do we need to save for the future, and so forth? And then what's really important too is, is many people are very good at putting money in their four hundred one ks and their retirement plans, but oftentimes they neglect having excess money outside of a plan in case of an emergency. Yeah. You call it an emergency fund, whatever you'd like. But, you know, when that air conditioner goes, you're not going to want to have to pull money out of your 401k to pay for it. And I don't usually like to tell people, well, just put it on the credit card and pay for it over the next 10 years. And, you know, you'll pay three, four, five times what the actual air conditioning unit costs because of the interest. We want to have some type of an emergency fund. So we have to take all of these things into consideration. What do you like to advise as far as time to have an emergency fund, how much time out if you if you ran into a job you know, loss or something on the like that? Absolute minimum, and I mean this is really the minimum would be three months, yeah. but I really like to see six yeah, months yeah, plus yeah, yeah, in, six in reserves. Okay. You know, if your expenses are four thousand a month, yeah. five thousand a month, yeah. we'll take that times six, and that's really what we'd want you to have yeah. in in that emergency fund. Yeah, and a lot of people don't. Yeah, and a lot of people don't. You're right there living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. 
And when that big expense comes along, yeah, maybe they need to borrow from that 401k or ask mom and dad for money or whatever it might be. But let's try not to do that. And the way you can do it is by understanding your behaviors when it comes to spending, create a budget, and uh, do your best to stick to that budget. Good. Good, Yeah. Good work, John. And you're the best at giving all this advice. So thank you again. And folks can reach out to me, schedule an appointment at our website, GrandCanyonPlanning.com, or our number, 480-991-1055. Securities and advisory services offered through Creative One Securities, LLC, a member of FINRA, Tippic, and an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates, LLC, and Creative One Securities, LLC, not affiliated. Thank you, Well done, sir. Thank you, John. Talk to you soon. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Delight to have Brett Johnson with us. He is a partner with the law firm of Snell & Wilmer, based here locally, offices around the country. SWLaw.com is their website. Brett Johnson, how are you, sir? Good. Thank you for having me, Seth. Of course. Thanks for being with us. I thought this was going to be a massive story, and I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it is, and I'm not seeing it, but... Um, when I saw that uh, the House of Representatives was going to hold the FBI director, not a former FBI director, the current FBI director, in contempt of Congress, I just thought this was a big darn deal. And I was hoping you might be able to tell us a little bit about what's going on here. Yeah, unfortunately, it happens more often than not, right? Okay. So <laughs> it, it sounds big when it comes across right away. But just, just as a way of background, yeah. um, that the House Oversight Committee, obviously that's in the congressional part, this is not the Senate, this is the House of Representatives, um, their Oversight Committee wanted a document from the FBI Director, for, Director Christopher Wray in regard to allegations that then Vice President Biden and some foreign nationals um, were somehow in, in a scheme to exchange money for certain actions, i.e. potential bribery. So that's that's what the FBI was investigating. The FBI um, did have a document, they've admitted the document exists, that lays out the investigation and potentially some findings. Inside that document, they're concerned about some of the people who provided information and whether or not confidential sources uh, would be exposed by giving it to Congress. Congress, on the other hand, is saying we only want the unclassified version, Um, and therefore you need to do that review and give it to us, and the FBI has uh, refused. The Oversight Committee now has moved for potential contempt of Congress proceedings against the FBI director for not releasing the documents. And the way that process works is it first gets referred to the committee, then the committee votes to refer it to the whole House, and if the House decides to hold him in contempt, there's two ways they could do it. One, I don't know if it's ever happened, where the sergeant-at-arms runs down and actually arrests them. That would be interesting. Um, and the other one is the more traditional route where it gets referred over to the U.S. attorney. And because, obviously, the U.S. attorney is also part of the executive branch, it's required by law that they um, institute a grand jury. And if the grand jury indicts, then um, the FBI director would have to go to trial. The, the last time that this happened in recent times was that when Steve Bannon um, refused to give up documents to the January 6th committee, uh, it was referred over, and then obviously the prosecution was done and he was convicted of it. That's now currently on appeal. Mm-hmm. Now, one wouldn't have... If you're a Republican, one w- if 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 yes, if you're a Republican, one wouldn't have a high expectation 
that a grand jury in Washington D.C. would do such a thing, though, uh, against against uh, 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 against a member. Well, of the de- and, yeah, and you, don't forget, you know, as I've mentioned before on the show, the grand jury's uh, process is all confidential and secret, yeah. and the prosecutor controls the proceedings. So yeah. You never really know what is released to the grand jury, um, unless obviously a prosecution is done and, and the the grand jury is unsealed. So, because of that role of the prosecutor, the prosecutor really doesn't think that there's a good case here or the Congress didn't do what it needed to do, mm-hmm. then it's unlikely that the grand jury is going to indict, in my experience. And that tends to be a fairly politicalized prosecutorial office in D.C., doesn't it? Absolutely. One hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So so it may be it, it may be a lot of a lot of smoke that doesn't that really doesn't end up or result in anything. Except, it, uh, except it, that he was. I mean, could you say he was held in contempt of Congress, or does that re- okay? So it doesn't require the indictment from okay. Correct. It's just not um, basically a civil action or criminal action that resulted in it. Just very similar to a president's been impeached. Mm-hmm. And, um, they were impeached, but they were never convicted. Right. So um, that the interesting thing is that this is not a fast process, as you can imagine, yeah. with the government. Yeah. Um, so, but it's. If if I had to put my my money down, it, uh, the months would be right before the general election, where some of this stuff might come to a head. So if I was the campaign manager for President Biden, I'd be really concerned about the timing of all of this. And the FBI directors they 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 serve terms that extend uh, internal and beyond uh, the, the revolution of a presidency. Yeah. Ten years, yeah. but uh, obviously they serve at the pleasure of the president. Yeah. And the president, the president can dismiss the FBI director. And one recalls, if I'm not mistaken, the la- who would have been maybe the last high official to be held? Would it have been? I know Eric Holder. I think I, I, Eric I know Holder. That, yeah, Eric Holder's attorney yeah. general was held in contempt. Yeah, yeah Eric Holder. Um, the, there's been there's been several um, over the past few years. Obviously, C. Bannon. We just mentioned yeah. uh, Mark Meadows yep. was the chief of staff yeah, held in contempt. Right. That's right. Um, you know, so there's been quite a few folks, especially inside the executive branch, um, including George Bush, uh, George W. Bush's White House ca- uh, counsel, Harriet Myers, Joshua Bolton, who was the White I House chief of staff. I forgot about those, yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so that, that shows list- you how important it is. The, the, That's the, the right. Forgettable. Is, okay. All right. Yeah, this is warfare at a different level. Uh, Brett, the Supreme Court, we soon would, should expect fairly soon to be coming down with some big decisions. I would imagine. What's your time? What, what would your What would your uh, t- What would your telescope tell us? We, we could start they they are. They're They're going to be coming down with some 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 significant decisions. Um, obviously, they need to get over to uh, um, start teaching their classes during the summer break. So I do think that there's going to be uh, a lot of interesting things that are uh, that are going to happen, um, both on the freedom of speech. Um, concept as well as uh, um, the role of government. So it's going to be an interesting, interesting. Uh, not even thirty days. I would give it the next fifteen days. So we'll be talking a lot. Free speech, uh, the role of government, the Chevron Doctrine, which we've talked about before, and of course, affirmative race-based affirmative action with regard to Harvard and UNC, right? Yeah, absolutely, and I bet that that's going to be one of the last ones. I was going to guess, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then you also have uh, the redistricting case and the role of of courts within that system. So some interesting historical ones, and this Supreme Court in particular really likes history, so it's going to be um, an interesting read for sure. Uh, Brett, what else else are we not covering that we should get ready to be? What was the – remind me of the free speech case. Was it one of the bakery cases? Uh, What was the free speech case? Yeah, 
definitely one of the bakery cases yeah, yeah. that are going there that are coming up, very similar to what we had here in in in, uh, in Arizona. Yeah. But basically, the the requirement to to take certain action right. with that might violate your religion. So right. it's a compelled it, speech it, case, kind exactly. Of. Yeah. And it's gonna it's expected, you know, with the, with this Supreme Court to to really um, kind of extend the rights of those who who want to refuse uh, services based sure. off of First Amendment rights. Yeah, they keep kicking that one down in parts, don't they? And uh, they do. Yeah, and so that this. Do you think this might be the final resolution to it? Hopefully, <laughs> get beyond Wait, it. Uh, yeah, well, well, yeah. Fi- fi- Final final resolution until the Supreme Court rotates. Yeah, so, yeah. You guys yeah. never say final resolution. That's right. <laughs> Our final <laughs> Roe versus Wade yeah. wasn't final, right? Brett Johnson, <laughs> Snell and Wilmer, SWLaw.com. You're so good, and thank you for being with us again. Thank you, Seth. I appreciate it. You betcha. We'll talk to you next week. I'm Seth Liebson, and we will be right back. More than uh, short-term inflation, uh, stock market volatility, bank failures, possible recession that people keep talking about. Why Refi has an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Federal Reserve. A portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like, and no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in this secure collateralized portfolio being offered up by Y-Refi. They are headquartered here locally and encourage you to stop by their offices. They're on the 101 in Scottsdale Road. I've been there, and you won't get a sales pitch. No one's going to ask you to sign anything. And when you meet with the team at Y-Refi, you'll see why I like and trust them so much, and you can too. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm, and you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's right, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or give them a call at 888-Y-REFI-34, 888-Y-REFI-34. Sometimes we worry about the college students, and sometimes we don't. Here's one I don't. This guy's got his head on straight, writing in the Wall Street Journal. He is a graduate student, Ben Ogilvie, at the University of Chicago, working on his JD MBA, asked about um, the boycotts of Target and Bud Light and the like. He wrote, The vibe of a consumer good can be as important as the good itself. I drink Coke partly because Santa Santa Claus does, and I wear Vans partly because I want to look like a Los Angeles skateboarder. While Coke and Vans have good vibes, Bud Light and Target killed theirs by associating their brands with the excesses of the LGBTQ plus movement. It's creepy that Target is trying to mainstream breast binders, so I just don't shop there anymore. I'm not making a rationally calculated effort to change Target's behavior. I'm making an irrational effort to avoid bad vibes. Generally speaking, companies should stay away from politics because it's none of their business. That's not to say that all business involvement with social causes is bad. I like how Dave's Killer Bread employs ex-convicts, for example, which fits with the founder's personal story and the company's need to staff their bakeries. But when companies venture into the culture wars, it feels like they are misusing their authority and throwing some of their customers under the bus. As Michael Jordan once said, Republicans buy sneakers too. Corporate culture wars also feed the conspiratorial tendencies of the grassroots. Recently, Americans learned that the mainstream media 
invented Russiagate, Twitter secretly shadow banned conservatives, and BlackRock used ESG to push companies into adopting woke practices. If all of that leaves your head spinning, imagine how the average working class Republican from middle America feels. I don't worry about that, student. It's a good one. A lot more coming up. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 